Lecture 18, Courtly Love. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we followed the story of Henry II and his very colorful family to its tragic end as Henry lay dying, betrayed by his two surviving sons. It's a story worthy of fiction, and it has indeed inspired some wonderful fiction. But of course, Henry and his family were part of a courtly culture that consumed fiction with great enjoyment. And so today, we're going to talk about the literature of the Angevin period. Now, what kinds of stories and poems did these people like to read and listen to? The reason we're going to spend an entire lecture on this subject is that this period, the 12th century, produces two of the most important developments in all of literary history. And our people, the ones we've been talking about over the last couple of lectures, they are right in the middle of it. Now, the first of these developments is the more revolutionary of the two because it actually changed the whole nature of what was discussed in works of literature, what they were actually about. And I'm talking here about the development of courtly love. I'll be defining the term as we go along. Right, right away you can hear that it's courtly. It has to do with courts. But for right now, I just want to say that discussing love of a romantic sort is actually new in the 12th century, or at least it hadn't been done for many centuries. So our period sees the arrival of love as a major theme in fiction. Try to imagine most fiction today without love as the main element of the plot, and I think you'll see how important this innovation of the 12th century really is. The second of the two developments I want to talk about today is not as revolutionary but still extremely important. The 12th century is the period when King Arthur hits the bestseller lists. So we're going to be talking about how his legend develops, how he becomes a household name throughout Europe. But the popularity of King Arthur is very much tied to the phenomenon of courtly love in general, because the stories about Arthur draw very heavily on the new themes that courtly love is making popular in the 12th century. So first we'll talk about courtly love in general, and then we're going to talk about King Arthur. Now, the first thing to say about courtly love, and it might seem odd, is that we have to explain where it comes from. In between classical times and the 12th century, love had really disappeared off of the literary radar screen. There were lots of other themes that were more popular. In Latin literature, it's mostly written by churchmen, of course, the love that you find discussed is mostly the love of the soul for God, or the spiritual love between clerics united by a common purpose. It's pretty ethereal stuff. On the other hand, in vernacular literature, you have texts like Beowulf, and the emphasis is very much on warrior values, loyalty, bravery, and the troubles that sometimes arise when these values come into conflict. Now, a text that a lot of people in the English elite would have known in the early 12th century was the Song of Roland. It was an epic poem. It was written in French about the hero Roland, the nephew of Charlemagne, who was assigned to the rear guard of Charlemagne's army. The rear guard comes under attack, 
and Roland has to choose between his duty to protect his brothers in arms and his desire to seem brave. He wants to beat off the enemies without help, but finally he blows his horn to summon Charlemagne's army back to help him. And by that point, it's too late. Now, that's the kind of text people would have listened to in the royal and noble halls throughout the area where French was spoken, and that would certainly include the whole area ruled by the English kings. And it's a very male-oriented kind of literature. The plots are all about things that men do, and there are hardly any female characters. But about 1100, there was a major shift in literary sensibilities, and it began in the south, and it spread north. You'll remember from our last lecture that I talked about France really being divided into two main cultural zones, and even the language in the two zones was different. The south of France looked very much across the Pyrenees into Spain, and they were quite heavily influenced by Spanish culture, which had a very strong imprint from the Muslim states that went back to the Islamic conquest of Spain in the 8th century. In the 11th century, the unified Spanish caliphate had fallen apart into many smaller Muslim states, and there were also several small Christian kingdoms in the north of Spain, so the political situation was very confusing, but the artistic life of Spain was flourishing because there were so many courts competing to patronize the best artists and poets and musicians. Now, there were many close contacts between Aquitaine and Spain, uh, through trade, certainly, and even through important marriages. I mentioned in the last lecture the famous grandfather of Eleanor of Aquitaine, Duke William IX. He was one of the first troubadour poets, and he seems to have picked up the elements of the poetry trade partly from one of his wives, who was a Spanish princess. And she probably brought Spanish musicians and poets with her when she crossed the Pyrenees into Aquitaine and you see the birth of a new literary fashion. And it comes out of this contact with a very vibrant, very multicultural Spain. And the new poetry that's being written is very different from works like the Song of Roland. It's frankly romantic, and it's even frankly erotic. It's not about valor and duty. It's about love. Now, Duke William of Aquitaine didn't just write poetry. He patronized lots of other poets. He paid them just to write poetry at his court. So the court in Aquitaine became a kind of literary magnet. It attracted the best poets in southern France, all of them writing in this new style. And this is the atmosphere in which Eleanor of Aquitaine grew up. She grew up listening to love songs. And she brought them north with her when she married King Louis of France at the age of 15. And as we've seen, Eleanor had a very powerful personality. It takes grit to defy two kings, which is what she did. Eleanor was perfectly capable of making sure that this new literary fashion got a hearing in the north of France, though doubtless King Louis did not care for it personally. Eleanor also made sure to transmit her love of love songs to her two daughters by King Louis. And we haven't talked about these daughters very much. When Eleanor and Louis were divorced in 1152, Eleanor was forced to leave them behind. Husbands got custody in the Middle Ages. It's generally the case. But Eleanor's influence had stuck, particularly in the case of one of the daughters, Marie. 
She became the Countess of Champagne, and she lived until 1198. And as Countess, Marie ran the most glittering literary salon of 12th century Europe. All of the main trends we're talking about today went through Champagne. And I think it's a testimony to how important noble patronage is in this period. Creative artists can't make a living without it. There aren't royalties from big sales of books or anything like that to sustain them. So without people like Marie of Champagne, there wouldn't have been anything like the literary explosion that we see in this period. But back for one second to Marie's mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine. At various points during her time as Queen of England, Eleanor was actually in Poitou, basically running the place on behalf of her husband, King Henry, because she was local, she knew the job. And so she was in a position to keep the troubadour tradition going in the South as well. And she passed her taste on to her son, Richard. Richard was her designated successor in Aquitaine. And he also became a very important literary patron, so much so that there were later legends about him involving him composing poetry himself. And we'll get to that in the next lecture. But for now, I think the important point is that this emphasis on love in literature spreads all over the larger French-speaking world and beyond, largely due to the patronage networks that are set up by people like Eleanor of Aquitaine and her children. So I've talked about how this new kind of literature spread, but I haven't really talked about what it is yet. If you ran across a text in a book, how would you know, aha, that's courtly love? Well, one thing would be to look for some of the standard characteristics of courtly love, and I'll just talk about three of them. The first is that courtly love is supposed to be secret. And this is one of the driving engines in the plot of a courtly love story or a courtly song. It's what provides the suspense. And the secrecy brings me to the second main characteristic of courtly love. Why is it a secret? And this one is a bit more surprising. The secrecy is necessary because the love is almost always adulterous. Now, usually the woman is married and her lover is not. And the reason the love has to be adulterous is that in contemporary terms, if you want mad, passionate, romantic love, well, that kind of love doesn't go with marriage. They just don't go together. Love between spouses is supposed to be more of a dutiful thing, a religious thing, Marriages for the nobility are really rather business-like affairs. They're contracted between families rather than individuals. There isn't any romantic pursuit involved. It's more a question of property and political alliances. And then you're supposed to make the best of it. If you wanted something really exciting, you had to look elsewhere. So you've got love that's secret and illicit, and that's what makes it exciting. And the third main element in courtly love is that you get a kind of subversion of the normal gender hierarchy. What do I mean by that? I mean that instead of the man calling the shots, which is probably how it mostly goes in real life, in these stories and songs, you get the woman put on a pedestal, so to speak. She's got the power to say yes or no. Of course, that's not the case in a real marriage. She can relieve the torment of her lover 
or not. She is in charge of her own fate. And I imagine that this element may have been very attractive to a female audience in the 12th century. So those are the three main aspects of courtly love poetry and stories. Now, one thing that varies across these stories and songs is whether the love is ultimately consummated in a physical sense. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes there's a focus on the desperate, unfulfilled longing of the lover. Other times, you get the couple trying desperately to avoid being caught in the act. In each case, though, it's clear that the love is freely given, which is quite different from marriage, where you have to love your spouse, so it's not much of a compliment if you do. That's how they perceived it in the 12th century. Now I want to say a couple of things about how this literature was experienced. A very important point to make about this literature is that it's often set to music. The music for these poems is almost never written down. Musical notation is still evolving in this period. But enough survives for us to get a sense of what it sounds like. And when you listen to this music, you can hear very clearly the Arab roots of the music. You know that it came from over the Pyrenees, and also probably partly from the Crusades. European music owes a very considerable debt to Arab music. And that brings me to my other point. This is literature that is usually performed for an audience. The musicians and poets might be professionals. They might be noble amateurs. The audience might be large, perhaps a gathering in the hall of a castle or lodge. Or it might be small, perhaps only a few people in a small chamber. But it was experienced usually in a social setting, in a multi-sensory manner. It's part of the sociability of the court. And we know from literary allusions in the poems that there were certain plots, certain characters, that are so well known that people could just refer to them in passing, and they would expect that their audience would get the reference. So this literature creates a kind of common stock of references that people all knew. It helped to knit together the cultural elite. Well, now that I've talked about what courtly love is in general and about how it was performed, I want to say something about one of the most famous works of this period. But first I need to justify doing so because the work I'm going to talk about was not written in England, not, not even in a part of France ruled by England. It was written at the court of Marie of Champagne, the daughter of Eleanor of Aquitaine, who I talked about earlier. Now, how can I justify talking about this work from Champagne in a course about medieval England? Well, I think I can. The important point here is that in the 12th century, culture does not really respect national boundaries in our modern sense. The English elite is a cross-channel elite. Many members of this group go back and forth quite easily between England and France. They speak French. They consider French to be the language of polite society. And they wouldn't have cared what part of the French-speaking world a song was written in. It was their culture. So if we want to understand the 12th century English, we need to understand their literature, whether or not it was written in France. So a few words, then, about one of the most important works written at the court of Marie of Champagne. But I'm going to go back a bit on what I just said in one sense. The work I want to talk about briefly was not actually written in French. It was written in Latin. 
and I'm talking about a work by a guy named Andreas the Chaplain, and it was called The Art of Courtly Love. Andreas was a literary protege of Marie of Champagne. He refers to her explicitly in his work. And The Art of Courtly Love is a kind of treatise about courtly love and how it's supposed to work. It's sort of a guidebook for the uninitiated, so you know what the rules are and how to follow them. So who is this guy, Andreas the chaplain? He's a court cleric. That means he belongs to a class of men who are becoming very numerous in this period, people who had had a university education. Universities are just getting going in the 12th century. He's in minor orders of some kind, so probably not a priest, something a little bit less than a priest. He has a very worldly orientation, though. He knows the court intimately, and he's very much writing about it from within. Now, his work is modeled on the art of love by the Roman poet Ovid. And Ovid was very, very popular in this period, and that's a sign of how important love is. People are going back to find things that had been written about love a long time ago. They have to go all the way back to the classical period. But Andreas is updating Ovid to fit a 12th century context. In his work, Andreas lays out how men and women of different social classes should approach each other to try to win each other's love. And what he does is to give men and women of different social levels talking points, in effect, good lines, to break the ice. And it's a fascinating work because you can see very clearly how both gender and social class are supposed to determine people's behavior. You might have a woman of high social status who can be more powerful than a man of low social status, at least to a degree. And Andreas also makes it very clear that he thinks the easiest relationships to sustain are ones between social equals. He is certainly not a social revolutionary at all. Now, of course, Andreas is describing the secret adulterous relationships we've talked about. But at the end of the book, he takes it all back. He issues a retraction. He says, these relationships are sinful. Uh-oh. What are we to make of this? Scholars aren't sure. And I think this ambiguity runs through the whole phenomenon of courtly love. If Andreas is really sorry he wrote all that stuff about adultery, then why not just suppress the work? Why let it circulate, albeit with this retraction? Is he joking about the retraction? Does he really have a change of heart? I don't think we know. And I think that brings us to a larger question about courtly love in general. I don't think we know how seriously people took it all. Probably it varied quite a lot from person to person. Uh, is there life imitating art? Is there art imitating life? Do, do people really engage in these kinds of relationships? Do they get a thrill out of the danger of getting caught? It's actually a serious risk. We know of cases where people were caught in adultery and they were very severely dealt with. The men were usually executed in horrible ways and the women were banished. Jealous husbands were not going to overlook this sort of thing because it was very publicly shameful to a man for his wife to commit adultery. Maybe the whole phenomenon is kind of a vicarious thrill. People liked reading about these dangers and then Maybe that was enough to make them content with their domestic lot. It's a puzzle, and I don't think we're ever going to solve it. 
But one thing we can say unequivocally, even though the literary trends we've been talking about have their origin in France, and before that in Spain, the most popular stories of the 12th century have to do with material that comes out of England. The most successful group of tales from this period, the one with a long future ahead of it that stretches down to the present day, was the group of stories about King Arthur. And I think they were successful because they ended up being a fusion of interesting characters and stories, and then also the values and ethos of courtly love. It all ends up being a very winning combination. And all of Europe has England to thank for this, or rather, Britain, because the stories come from a period before there was an England. Arthur supposedly lived right after the fall of Roman Britain when the first English settlers are arriving on British soil. And because everybody in Europe knew that the stories came from Britain, this cycle of Arthurian stories was known as the Matière de Bretagne, the Matter of Britain. So let's figure out how Arthur becomes the most popular literary character of the 12th century. We last talked about Arthur many lectures back when we talked about the question of whether he was a real person or not, and we concluded that we were never going to know for sure. But we do think there were stories about Arthur that circulated from at least the early 7th century, and by the 9th century they were clearly associated with a war leader who supposedly beat the Anglo-Saxons in 12 big battles around the year 500. Now, between the 9th century and the 12th century, these stories are continuing to circulate, and doubtless they're getting more elaborate over time, but they're circulating in the Celtic regions, in Wales and Cornwall, and possibly Brittany in France. Then, in the 1130s, a literary thunderclap. A Welsh writer named Geoffrey of Monmouth a cleric from South Wales wrote a book in Latin that claimed to be a translation of an ancient book of British history in the Welsh language. And this work was called The History of the Kings of Britain. And it told the whole history of Britain from the time of the Trojan War down to the 7th century. And one of the most important parts of the story was the section about King Arthur. Now there's all sorts of other interesting stuff in Geoffrey's history. That's where we get Old King Cole from the nursery rhyme, for instance. It's also the ultimate source of the plots for several plays by Shakespeare, King Lear, and Cymbeline. That comes out of Geoffrey of Monmouth. But without a doubt, the part that had a future was the part about Arthur. Geoffrey's work was extremely popular. Many, many manuscripts of it survive. But of course, it's in Latin, and it gives, that gives it tons of credibility, but it limits its circulation. The stories about Arthur really take off in about 1155 when a Norman poet named Was translates Geoffrey into French verse. And that was it. Arthur took off. As we've seen, wherever French is spoken, the same texts are going to circulate. So Was spreads throughout the Angevin lands over into the French-ruled parts of France, including the court of Marie of Champagne. And that's where Arthur finally found his muse. Marie of Champagne, as we've seen, is a great literary patron. She's the patron of Andreas the Chaplain, but she's also the patron of a poet called Chrétien de Troyes. And Chrétien is the one who puts courtly love into the Arthur stories. Now he used Was and he used other stories about Arthur that were probably circulating orally, 
But the Arthur that Chrétien writes about is essentially a 12th century courtly king. He lives in a courtly city called Camelot, surrounded by knights. And these knights seem a lot like the knights who would have probably been listening to the stories. The knights hold tournaments, very like the ones that the 12th century audience would have been familiar with. Now this Arthur is very different from the 6th century British war leader that we met up with originally. He's certainly a brave warrior, but he enjoys the company of elegant ladies as well. And here I think we see again the evidence of the appeal to a female audience for this literature. So King Arthur has changed with the times, but Chrétien made another huge contribution to the development of Arthurian literature. Chrétien created Sir Lancelot. Now I'm sure you're wondering, how do you have stories about King Arthur without Lancelot? Well, if you look at the story of King Arthur in Geoffrey of Monmouth and then in the translation by Was, you do get Arthur and Guinevere, and Guinevere does betray Arthur, but the man she betrays him with is his nephew Mordred, and he's not an admirable character at all. You don't like him, you have no sympathy for him, you have really no sympathy for Guinevere. Chrétien really changes things around. He takes the whole idea of the courtly lover, the passionate suitor, and he creates Sir Lancelot. And somehow, we do like Lancelot, we do admire him, even though he's trying as hard as he can to sleep with the queen. Now, this love triangle proved wildly popular. Chrétien wrote a whole series of Arthurian works, but the most famous is The Knight of the Cart, about the relationship between Guinevere and Lancelot. Lancelot, of course, is one of Arthur's knights, and he's in love with Queen Guinevere. Guinevere is abducted by the evil Meliagant, and Lancelot has to rescue her. Lancelot has to do a lot of difficult things along the way, but one of the most interesting, I think, is the feat that gives the story its name, The Knight of the Cart. Now, in order to find out where Guinevere is being kept, Lancelot has to accept an offer by a dwarf to ride with the dwarf in a cart to the place where he will be told Guinevere's whereabouts. And we're told in the story that riding in a cart is a deeply shameful thing. It's associated with criminals being led to their execution. Lancelot hesitates. He knows that if word gets out about the cart, he will be shamed. But love wins out, and he gets in. And this shows the lengths that he'll go to for the sake of his love. This is the central conflict, reputation versus love. Now, Lancelot also has to withstand temptation. During his travels, Lancelot needs to find shelter, and he encounters a woman who promises him a bed for the night, but only if he will share it with her. Now, he doesn't want to because he's in love with Guinevere, but he reluctantly consents. Then, when the time comes, he lies down next to this very enticing woman, and he doesn't even touch her. Now, once again, I think this episode is designed to appeal to a female audience. This is a very impressive demonstration of fidelity. Now, of course, Lancelot does eventually meet up with Guinevere, and in the course of their adventures, they become lovers, though they have to go to extraordinary lengths uh, to keep this secret. At the end of the story, Lancelot finally defeats Meliagant, the whole court rejoices, including King Arthur, but Chrétien makes it very clear that Lancelot and Guinevere are just biding their time until they can find a way to be alone again. It almost looks as if room is being left for a sequel. 
But in fact, Chrétien didn't write about Lancelot and Guinevere again, and he didn't even actually write the last bit of The Knight of the Cart. He had another writer finish it off, and no one is sure why. There's speculation that he actually became disgusted by the adulterous nature of the relationship between Lancelot and Guinevere. Maybe he's writing about it only because his patron wanted him to, and then he got sick of the subject. Here we're back to the essential ambiguity about courtly love. Is it really okay to be advocating adultery? Maybe Chrétien wasn't sure. Now, Chrétien also wrote other stories about Arthur and his knights, and one very important story that he started but didn't finish was about Percival and the Holy Grail, the chalice uh, from the Last Supper uh, that we, people had to go and search for. And this is going to be very important in Arthurian literature from now on, this quest by Arthur's knights to find the Holy Grail. We're not sure where Chrétien got this from, but it's another of the very huge contributions that he made to the body of Arthurian stories. Now, Chrétien's work was translated into all of the major European languages. People in Germany, in Spain, and in Italy named their sons Arthur, and that was true closer to home as well. In the last lecture, we mentioned that the grandson of Henry II, the son of Prince Geoffrey and his wife Constance of Brittany, was named Arthur, and we'll have more to say about this Arthur in a future lecture. But for now, I think the important point to make for our purposes is that you see the Angevin Empire, or the Angevin realms or dominions, whatever you want to call them, this Angevin Empire is at the heart of some of the most important literary developments of the 12th century. And that's the case even though the most famous works of this period come out of French territory. Courtly love poetry makes its way to the rest of Europe via Aquitaine. King Arthur comes from Wales. Both of these territories are under Angevin rule in the 12th century, and you can even make the case that the reach of the Angevin court extends to Champagne via the influence of Eleanor of Aquitaine on her daughter, Countess Marie. You can't draw hard and fast national boundaries in this period, and certainly the literature doesn't respect these boundaries. It's popular everywhere. People love to hear about love. In our next lecture, we're going to return to our narrative to learn about the truth and the fiction behind a man who was also a great literary patron, but a protagonist, too, in many romantic stories, Richard the Lionheart. <laughs>